Good morning, Bethel Church. There are no snow days at church. We're always here. You don't get to stay home and sleep in. You get to come and worship our God. That's what we get to do. Uh, Would you just bow with me and we'll pray before uh, we get to our message. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we rejoice in the goodness of who you are. We rejoice in the goodness of the salvation that you have brought to us. Uh, We are secure in you, not in our own merits, not in our own efforts, but because of the work of Christ, planned by the Father, animated by the Spirit, executed by the Son. What a great salvation that we have. So Lord, we thank you uh, for who you are, for what you've done in our lives. I pray that you would give us attentiveness now, that we would be able to listen well, to learn, that we would leave here this morning changed, that we would leave here this morning loving you more because we know you more. So we ask for your help to this end. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, If you want to, take out your Bibles, please, and open to Galatians chapter four, and you can put your finger in it, and um, we'll get there in about 20 minutes, just so you know. Uh, This morning, uh, we're starting a new series. Last week, we finished our series uh, through the first three chapters of Revelation, a series titled Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing that series because I got to show off some of my pictures uh, to Turkey. Uh, I don't have any pictures of this series we're in right now, really. Uh, But you've kind of shown up this morning. I didn't tell you what we were doing next, so you've kind of showed up this morning uh, writing a bit of a blank check of commitment. So thanks for that. Uh, Over the next two weeks, we're going to do a short series looking at the triune nature of God. And um, as I thought about that, I thought, it actually sounds like we might be doing the wrong number of Sundays. If we're talking about the Trinity, maybe we should do three Sundays, right? Or one. Or which is it? (laughs) I'm doing two. How about that? Um, So we're going to do a short two-week series about the triune uh, nature of God. And uh, I want to kind of let you know initially here, this is going to take a little different shape than, than a normal Sunday morning sermon. I'm going to approach this inductively, kind of starting from experience, questions, moving to the text, where normally we start from the text and then move out of that. So just be aware that it's going to have a little different direction to it this morning, so uh, you're not in panic mode at 20 minutes in when I say, now open your Bibles, okay? So just want to caution you there. Uh, The triune nature of God, probably one of the least taught doctrines in the church, uh, quite frankly, because it's difficult. But if we are to know our God and know him as he is, then we need to know how he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And God is revealed in the scriptures as triune, three in one. And in fact, if, uh, if you really want to know what the Bible is all about in its overarching message, it really is kind of summarized, I think, in one phrase that's repeated often. In fact, I, I hope this sort of becomes burned in your memory in your time here at Bethel Church. If you really want to know what the story of the Bible is all about and about all of human history, it's this. Then I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. So we don't want to approach God simply as a tool or an instrument to use. We want to approach God as a person to know because we will live in dynamic relationship with God for eternity if we've come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. But we want to know our God and not just know aspects about him, but know him personally and truly delight in him as he is, as he is revealed in the scriptures. Now, <clears throat> one of the ways I think to study the Trinity 
is to think about how the Trinity operates in our life. Now, I'm going to throw out two big words, and I hope this won't glaze you over here. But we could approach the study of the Trinity two different ways. We could study what you call the ontological aspect of the Trinity or the economic. In other words, we could look at the Trinity and say, what is this thing? Or you can look at the economic and say, what does this triune God do? And we're going to do the latter. Let me give you a different example. I could bring in a hammer this morning and hold it up, and we could all stand back and behold, what is a hammer in its essence? Or somebody could use the hammer, and we could go, oh, I see. So we're going to do the latter. We're going to look at God for how he interacts and operates in the Christian's life in a triune manner to help us understand uh, the nature of the Trinity. We call that the economic view of the Trinity. So we're going to look at two ways in which we sort of interface with God, and that is um, through sort of the doctrine of salvation, so we can see how the gospel has a Trinitarian shape to it, and then next week we're going to look at prayer and how our best prayers actually have a Trinitarian shape to them. So we're looking at how God uh, interfaces with or interacts with mankind in a triune way to understand the Trinity. I hope that makes sense. Let me put it this way. Um, Some of you might say, that's a very male way of trying to get to know somebody, and it probably is. Uh, Ladies, you guys are all so relational. We could just put a group of ladies together in a room, and you would just start relating. Like, you just have that in you. It just would, you'd start relating, it would just percolate, it would happen. But if you take a bunch of guys and you just throw them in the room together, like something bad's going to happen. <laughs> you know, if we don't have like a tool or a ball or something to do, something's getting broke. We're going to kick the wall or each other or something. You know, we need to, men kind of need to orient around, hey, we've got this wood pile to split here or this moose carcass to handle or whatever. And so this might be sort of a male way of approaching Uh, an understanding of the Trinity, but I have to live in the skin that I have. So that's what we're doing this morning. Um, Let's see here. Where am I at here? Over the next two weeks, uh, what I hope you really uh, learn and sort of come away from this series with, I hope you'll be pleasantly surprised by three things. Uh, Number one, that the triune nature of God is more important than you might know. And number two, that the triune nature of God is more beautiful than you might have thought. And thirdly, you may already be more Trinitarian than you're aware. If you're a Christian, you might already be more Trinitarian than you're aware. So let's start with our first one here. The triune nature of God, more important than you know. Um, Simply trying to grasp the triune nature of God, that is his three-in-oneness, Uh, is incredibly difficult. How's that for understatement this morning, right? Somebody once said it this way, the Trinity, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. And that feels about right to me. Um, But accepting and embracing the triune nature of God is more important than you might think. Um, I've brought an article this morning uh, about a couple of folks uh, you might know of. How many of you have heard of the musician Gunger? Can I get a few hands? Ooh, more in second service than first. Interesting. Uh, There's about four people, first service. I keep thinking, I would like to know a little bit about the name Gunger. Did his mother give him that name? If you name your kid Gunger, you know, you're either going to have a musician or a warlord, you know, one or the other. I don't think there's any middle ground. 
Um, Michael Gunger uh, actually has written some pretty shocking comments uh, about the atonement. And I want to read them to you. Uh, He actually tweeted this out a while back, but he said this. He called the atonement evil and horrific, decrying a God that would mandate blood sacrifice for sin. William Paul, uh, William Paul Young, the author of the 20 million copy bestseller, The Shack, concurs in his new book, Lies We Believe About God. Young says of Christ's death, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser, a divine, who in divine wisdom created a means of torture to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility in any sense, and rightly so. Better no God at all than this one. Man, these are two guys who claim the name of Christ, or at least have. Uh, These are two guys who sell their wares to Christians and two guys who don't seem to love the Christian God. So what I want you to see from that is just what is at stake when we have a misunderstanding of the triune nature of God? It leads us to a misunderstanding of all that God does, including the atonement, sacrifice for sin, and the rest of it. There is an awful lot at stake. Uh, When we have a faulty understanding of the triune God, we end up distorting the work of God and the beauty of God. And people come to all kinds of disturbing conclusions about him. For example... A father who is so grouchy about something who has to send his son to his own horrific death to people who don't deserve it ends up sounding like a detestable person, someone capable of divine child abuse. These are the, these are the thoughts and sentiments of Rob Bell, comedian Ricky Gervais, uh, musician Gunger, and also William Young here. So you can see where a faulty understanding of the Trinity takes you. Or, and that's just about the Father. Let's see where it takes you about the Son. Where Jesus says, it's good that I leave, otherwise the Spirit wouldn't come to you. Well, without a proper understanding of the Trinity, that departure sounds an awful lot more like abandonment rather than divine care. Or of the Spirit, who only always glorifies the Son. Well, that simply sounds like a codependent relationship. Or some kind of depressingly unactualized person or something like that, but hardly divine. In other words, if we only understand the threeness of God, then we are left with what looks like a dysfunctional family. Not something that we maybe would want to join if invited. Or Tozer has said it this way, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be Utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. He goes on in another place to say, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. And that is what has happened in in many of these cases. When you hear these kinds of comments or complaints, like the ones I just read to you, oftentimes the reason they get there and have an issue with God is because they're not dealing with God as he is. Not dealing with God as he's been revealed in the scriptures, but rather dealing with the God of their own fabrication. Like walking into the mall and going into a -a Build-A-Bear store, right? Fashioning your own little teddy bear. People have cobbled together their own little teddy god 
who is no God at all. They try to do it to fashion him and make him out of things that are easy and adjustable and understandable to them. But that God is, to borrow the words of uh, a famous author, your God is too small, J.B. Phillips. The good news is this, though. If you are a Christian, you are probably already more Trinitarian than you know. And I have that hope for you guys, because after all, you guys go to a good church, too. So I think you're probably more Trinitarian than you know. One of the more encouraging books that I've read in the past five years was written by Michael Reeves, and the title of it is called Delighting in the Trinity, and I've listed it in your notes. Um, And one of the things that I really appreciated about this book, not only did Reeves help me understand the Trinity better, he helped me to like it, (laughs) to to find it beautiful, to enjoy it, to delight in it as, as the title uh, suggests, and that takes us to our next point here. The triune nature of God is more beautiful than you might have thought. It is certainly not an embarrassment to be wished away. Uh, So let me explain it this way. When we have a proper understanding of the triune nature of God, then we don't see the plan of God the Father to give the Son as a sacrifice for sin as divine child abuse. Because instead, we see now that God the Son also gives himself. As he says in the Gospels, no one takes my life. I give it of my own accord. And so the Father is the sender of the Son, but the Son, as fully God, is also the giver of himself. Now we don't find divine child abuse. Now we find the Godhead in cooperative work for our salvation. Christ is a willing sacrifice. And then when the son prepares his disciples for his departure, saying uh, that it is good that I go away, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, then realize this advocate or the Holy Spirit that he speaks of is not just the understudy of Jesus or the JV member of the Godhead or the babysitter of Christians, but the Holy Spirit is very God. And this helps us understand what God is doing in our lives. We're not just being babysat until Christ returns, but it is in fact better. Some of the most mysterious words in all of the scriptures, it's good that I go away. How could it be good that Jesus leaves planet earth? How could that be good? But we understand that when Jesus is on earth incarnate as he was, he was in a localized presence. But in his departure, he sends forth the Spirit who indwells every believer. God the Spirit lives in you, lives in me. Amazingly, the same Spirit of God that's in you is in me. And that is why Christian fellowship has unity in the Spirit, because we're drawn together by the same one and the same God who is within us. That's amazing. The conclusion that I I hope you see here is that our understanding and appreciation of the Trinity is what makes God beautiful, delightful. And so we don't find a dysfunctional family. Instead, what we find is a holy, eternal fellowship who enjoy life in themselves from eternity past and create uh, creatures such as ourselves to enjoy this life, to share life with them. And though we're rebels, he redeems us and brings us back, inviting us into their collective life. 
We find a unity of persons, collaborating and yet distinct, indivisible and yet specialized. Uh, You can see this is no embarrassment to be wished away. Um, If you take your hand out and flip it over on the back, I want to show you this diagram on the top here. Um, This diagram is creatively called the ancient diagram of the Trinity. Um, I will say this. It is theologically true. It's a helpful tool. It's technically accurate. It does protect us from error in in our understanding of the Trinity. The problem with it is is it looks more like the flex capacitor in the movie Back to the Future than it does a personal God that we want to relate to. Right? Anybody see that movie? I'm dating myself here. One. There we go. We got one honest person in here. Instead, we want to understand that the triune nature of God is beautiful. It was the theologian Karl Barth who said, the trinity of God, the triunity of God is the secret to his beauty. The secret to his beauty. And I want to read to you another, uh, this is kind of a longer excerpt from Michael Reeves in his book, The Lighting and the Trinity, that I've, I noted earlier. He says this, The very nature of the triune God is to be effusive, ebullient, bountiful. The Father rejoices to have another beside him. And he finds in his very self, he finds his very self in pouring out his love. Creation is about spreading the diffusion, the outward explosion of that love. This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. In his self-giving, he naturally pours forth life and goodness. He is then the source of all that is good, and that means he is not the sort of God who would call people to himself away from happiness and good things. Goodness and ultimate happiness are to be found with him, not apart from him. I love this picture of sort of the happiness and enjoyment and fulfillment as each member of the triune Godhead exists eternally in happy fellowship. They're delighted in themselves, in the relationship and the fellowship they have with one another. Creation comes out of that. Not by way of need, not by way of loneliness, not by way of missing something, but rather by way of saying this wonderful, beautiful fellowship, this love we have for one another ought to be shared in the same way that an artist has a beautiful concept in their mind and says, I have to express this and get this out in this creative work. Or the way a musician hears a melody in their head and says, for this to be really enjoyed, it must be shared. And so God has this beauty and this goodness in eternity past in the triune fellowship and expands it and shares it. And that's what creation is about. That is what's behind the very pregnant words of the triune God when we read the words of Genesis 1 and 26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God makes us capable of entering into his life, capable to relate and to interface with God himself. That's what we are as creatures, as those who can interact with God himself. Uh, Like parents who, after years of being married, say, hey, we have a goodness, we have a oneness, we have a love and affection for one another, and this needs to be shared. And so we hope to have children and impart this to them and bring them into this. Uh, 
So in the internal councils of heaven, we find God, three in one, delighting in their tripersonal fellowship, deciding to share it, and finding that generosity of this goodness was better than just holding it to themselves. You can see how thin the words are then when we talk about inviting God into our life. God has invited us into his life. He's the source of life. He has life in himself, making us, he has invited us into the very life of God. Go to our third point here. We need to know God as he is, and God is revealed as triune fellowship. And the nature of God being triune, being three in one, is certainly mysterious. And it definitely takes us sort of to the brink of what our minds, you know, can fathom. It's like asking someone to just sit there and contemplate eternity. You know, you just quit after a while or you blow up. One of the two. You know, I don't know which happens first. I think St. Augustine has expressed it really well where he says that if God is understood, then it is not God that you have understood. So what I want to say with this is that there is an element to which we're not going to grasp this. We are to pursue God, but we're not going to get God. We're not going to capture him fully. But while this nature of God is in fact a mystery, it's a mystery to embrace and not to be embarrassed about. It's a mystery to delight in and to pursue and not to shrug off. Uh, if I could ask it this way, men, why do you hunt and fish? Because it's easy? Just the opposite, because it's hard. Because it's an adventure. You don't tie your own flies because it's easy. It's the challenge of tying a fly that replicates something on the water and going around and slinging it just right so that it drops in this little pool and this current and you mend your line and you do all the little things to drift this thing by because it's hard. It's the hardness of it that makes it really cool. And then when the fish bites, it's like, yeah, I did it. It's great. It's the challenge that makes it wonderful. Women, same thing. You don't desire to have a family because it's easy. Nobody ever said, you know what would be great? Kids, they'll be easy. Piece of cake. The longing in your heart for children is about entering into their life, seeing these creatures whose decisions haven't been made yet and being able to develop and nurture and walk alongside them through life. It's the challenge of it that's particularly compelling. And I would just say, men and women, let us approach God in the same way with the same sense of adventure, a beautiful mystery, a worthy pursuit, one who wants us even more than we want him. Um, you guys remember that old movie? I've got two movie references in one sermon. You remember that old movie, Sleepless in Seattle? By the way, it's old, like 30 years old. Look that up today if you didn't feel bad enough about yourself. Sorry, not really, but... It felt like the thing I was supposed to say just then. There's, of course, the widower in the movie played uh, by Tom Hanks. And he's explaining to his eight-year-old son about this new woman that he's dating, right? Her name is Victoria. And he says this great line that's so memorable. It's just in my head all the time. I don't know why. She is, in fact, a mystery to me, he says, to explain why he's dating this person, to sort of pursue and to get to know her. I love, I love that phrase. She is, in fact, a mystery to me. But that's what drew him into the relationship. The mystery was compelling. I, I can relate to this in my relationship with Amy. 
when we first started dating, uh, actually this was just prior to when we were dating, she was working uh, with the youth group in Yakima, Washington, and I was the summer intern. Some of you have heard this story before. And I had just finished delivering a message to the youth group, and I kind of swaggered over to her fishing for a compliment and said, oh, how'd you think that went? And she says, I think you can do better. And I was like, I don't know how to, how to hear that. I feel like I got kicked and kissed at the same time. Like, <laughs> she thinks I can do better, but she thinks I could have done better. And I thought, this woman's a mystery. I got to marry her. I, I, could, I need a life of that kind of abuse. That'd be great. And I'll tell you, nothing has changed either, except that I don't swagger home so much and go, well, what'd you think? I just let her say it. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to invite that. But what I mean to say is, let the mystery of God and the triune nature of God draw us in, not drive us away. May we be enticed by him. May we find it a worthy pursuit, a great challenge, a delight to behold. Something that we will be discovering over a lifetime and an eternity. And our God will not disappoint. Let the mystery of the triune nature of God drive us to good books and good music. Bible study and exploration of the created world. Conversations over coffee, learning from each other, listening to each other, asking questions, wondering out loud, discovery and praise. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the invitation of the psalmist. Keep tasting of the Lord. Keep discovering his goodness. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So the mystery of God and his triune nature is not an embarrassment to run away from, but a lifelong mystery to embrace, to explore, and to delight in. That takes us to our third point this morning. The salvation of God that God offers has a Trinitarian shape to it. And this is where I hope we understand the Trinity a little better by looking at just how it has been at work to save us. Uh, J.I. Packer has said this, the truth of the Trinity emerges as part of the doctrine of salvation. We see it at work, and we understand it a little bit better by seeing it work. Uh, So now you can turn to that passage you've had your finger in for 20 minutes, Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and here we see the triune nature of God at work for our salvation. But when, the time, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And here what we see in this passage is the beautiful coordinated work of the triune Godhead. Uh, I read the following excerpt I'm going to read to you here uh, when I was back in college uh, in a book by J.I. Packer, and it's still one of my go-to sections to understand and to um, interact with the nature of the Trinity. He says this, Their roles set forth as follows. The Father who planned sent first the Son and then the Spirit into the world to carry out his saving intentions. 
The son whose nature and joy it is always to do the father's will became man in order to die for us, rise for us, reign for us, and one day return for us to take us into the place of happy rest that he has prepared for us. In the meantime, he mediates mercy and help to us from his throne. The Holy Spirit, the self-effacing divine executive who engineered creation and now engineers the new creation, has been at work since Pentecost, imparting to believers their first installment of heaven's life. And in with the Savior, in addition, the Holy Spirit is changing believers progressively into Christ's image. Someone else has said it this way. It takes the entire trinity to save one soul. I love that line. It's too easy to focus on one member. And very often, mankind's uh, focus on one member of the trinity reflects more of themselves than of the nature of God. Some prioritize the Son. Some prioritize the Spirit. Others prioritize the Father. God, three in one. The entire trinity is necessary for the salvation of a single soul. With that in mind, we'll look at some of the distinctive roles of the members of the trinity. The father orchestrates, as the Galatians passage indicates here. There was a set time to initiate and to start this project of rescue mankind. Uh, My oldest son is getting ready for college now, and I'm starting to do some awful things like the FAFSA and uh, scholarship applications and researching all this stuff. And I hate that, by the way. Um, And I'm not too excited about him uh, leaving home for school. Uh, Recently, my dad um, sent up to us a box of all of the financial paperwork that uh, he went through in preparation for my going to school. And I just, I don't know why he did that. I don't, I don't, it was like his way of saying, see? <laughs> you know, it's like a football game. The football players are like, hi, mom. And dad's like, what am I, chopped liver? You know, my dad sent this up, I think, by way of saying, this is what it takes. And this is a bit what's in front of you. It took me like half a day to shred all these papers because they're all financial papers. But anyways, I was sitting there looking at it and I was thinking, you know, that is a role that my father played in my life that was quiet and behind the scenes and I didn't see it which was how he planned for this aspect in my life. And I think that's something that dads do. Sometimes our work goes a little bit unsung or unappreciated. You know, you got to get up, you go to work, you do your thing, and it's behind the scenes, and it's not always obvious. The Father plans. The Father has orchestrated the salvation. The first promise of God's redemptive plan is, is given in Genesis, Genesis 3, just moments after the fall, right? The fall occurs... The world goes to pot, and he says, I'm already setting in motion its recovery. In fact, the salvation that God had in mind for mankind actually started before that. That's what Ephesians tells us in the New Testament, right? Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In his love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't, "Uh uh-oh, we need cleanup on aisle six here. I don't know what happened. 
God, with full view of our rebellion, made us anyways. Which is kind of amazing and would lead some people to ask, why did he do that? And I would simply say there are aspects about God's nature that we would not know if there had not been a fall and a redemption. We wouldn't know his grace, mercy, forgiveness, justice, anger. Lots of things we wouldn't know about God if this weren't necessary, but it was. And it was planned. The Father plans. He has orchestrated our salvation, yet not alone. The Son executes. Notice that frequently on the lips of God the Son, especially in the Gospel of John, are the words, My time has not yet come. Jesus, knowing the precise moment of his obedience and submitting to the Father, yet he willingly is giving of himself. I love, I love the words I've already said earlier where he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He was not killed. He was self-given. God the Son gives of himself. Listen to the words of God the Son in his priestly prayer in John 17, just before his death. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Here we see these hints of what was happening in the eternal fellowship of the triune Godhead even before creation. This mutual love and affection and care expressed to one another. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Beautiful. Beautiful. So the Son executes the will of the Father, but it is not only the Father's will, it is the Son's ultimate will as well. The salvation is not the Father's alone, it is the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Which brings us to our last point. The Spirit animates. The Father orchestrates. The Son executes. The Spirit animates. Verse 6 of Galatians 4. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has also made you an heir. Uh, we could do a whole series on, of course, the work of any member of the triune Godhead here, and I just want to mention a few things of the Spirit and what He does and how He animates salvation in our life. He applies the work of Christ to us. Jesus performed it, dying for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God for sin. But the Spirit applies it to our life. The Spirit of God regenerates us. He breathes life into dead people. He breathes spiritual life into those who are spiritually dead. The Spirit of God indwells the believer. And that's, again, why it was good that Jesus left. Because while he was incarnate on earth, it was a localized presence. But God the Spirit inhabits all the God's people. The Spirit seals us in Christ. He is a deposit, a guaranteeing what is to come. And he now gives us power for obedience, changing our lives here and now, an installment of what is to come. And finally, he helps us in our prayers, and we're going to look at that next week, how our, our best prayers are actually trini Trinitarian. And so what I hope you see this morning, the triune nature of God, more important than you knew. 
Otherwise, all of the theology is just a mess. The triune nature of God is more beautiful than you thought. Not an embarrassment to be wished away, but something that is actually beautiful, and it is the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. And finally, the salvation of God has a Trinitarian shape to it, orchestrated by the Father, executed by the Son, animated by the Holy Spirit. I'll close with the words of Michael Reeves. The more Trinitarian the salvation, the sweeter it is. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, uh, we recognize that in the largeness of who you are, our minds come up short. But I pray that our minds and our hearts and our lives would not quit, but rather that we would lean in to discover the beautiful nature of our God. I pray, Lord, that as we think about our salvation and its Trinitarian shape, and next week our prayers and their Trinitarian shape, that we would begin to appreciate even more the depth and the goodness of our God. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you've invited us into your life and to the sweet, perfect fellowship you've had from eternity past. And we look forward to enjoying that for eternity future for those who have fallen upon the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.